This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sockledge, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Hello, hello, Sarah. How are you? This is Adam. I'm fantastic. We're just going to give everyone a minute to join the room. I am super excited to start and to talk with you, though, because there's so many things, of course, that we can dive into. So for just a minute, while we give some time to uh, populate a little bit of chit chat, uh, I am originally from New England and you are as well. Is that right? That's right. Where in New England are you from? So I grew up outside of Boston uh, in uh, the Concord, Lexington area, and I have a lot of family in New Hampshire as well. But I just knew that that was a place that you are from originally. It's always nice to connect with people from back home. Uh, So I just wanted to start with that note. That's fun. Do you say wicked too? Oh, yes. That's a word that stands out. And if I hear it, I make sure to to recognize that those people are from New England because it's a very specific word, isn't it? Yeah, or at least the use of it. Yep. Yeah, there's a few of them like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think we can get started. And so, welcome everybody. My name is Adam Sokolich, also known as the Best of Live Audio here on Twitter Spaces. And I am so excited today to be talking with one of the best people uh, to talk about all of the origins of life and, of course, of space. And just we're going to go into so many different things. I'm excited about this, Sarah. I've been preparing as much as possible. And so to give folks in the audience a little bit of an introduction, Dr. Sarah Walker is a tremendous theoretical physicist. Of course, she is also a astrobiologist and she's doing great work out there, great research. Uh, You can hear her on other episodes of Lex Friedman's podcast and many, many more. And this is your first time on Twitter spaces. Is that right? That's right. I'm a frequenter on Clubhouse, but not usually on Twitter. So this is really fun for me. Awesome. Well, I love talking with fascinating leaders, fascinating thinkers and doers. And so many of the people I I bring on here, this is their first time, but it's going to be so comfortable, so easy. It's going to be a great conversation, folks. We're going to dive in deep for just a little bit. And then later in the show, we're going to have open Q&A. So get your questions ready. Uh, What questions do you have about life and space and astrobiology and anything and everything? Uh, I'm truly, truly excited. So, Sarah, we were just talking about you growing up in New England. And I remember uh, just a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed the uh, incredible astronaut and author, Chris Hadfield, he talked about you know, knowing from a very young age of about nine years old, knowing that he wanted to go to space, knowing that he wanted to be an astronaut and what he did to get there. So in a way, before we dive into the origins of life, what was your origin story? How did you start and and when did you fall in love with uh, with the topics that you're diving into right now? Oh, sure. Um, So actually, I come from more of an artistic background. My mom uh, is an antique dealer and does interior decorating. So I grew up around a ton of old stuff. Um, And, you know, she was always kind of 
dragging me around to <laughs> antique shops and things. And my dad's a hairstylist. So I always thought when I was younger, I was going to be an artist. And actually, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a painter. Um, but what happened is I'm also a first-generation college student. So when I went to college uh, for the first time, I was at community college. And I took a physics class. Um, actually, I like science, so I just took all the science classes. And I fell in love with the idea of... Um, the fact that we could use mathematics to describe reality and go and look for things. And that was really inspired by the first day of class when my professor was talking about magnetic monopoles and the fact that people had predicted them from theory, but we didn't know if they existed. So we were building instruments to go and find them. And I thought that correspondence between the fact that our minds could actually comprehend reality and then go look for features that we didn't even know existed yet was just super fascinating. And I decided to be a physicist. Ooh, that is quite the story. I'm sure you, you skipped over quite a, a lot of, uh, you know, specific details. But one thing that I love to do, Sarah, is talk with fascinating people. And, and like I said, Chris Hadfield a couple of weeks ago, last weekend, it was Joshua Bach, uh, who is a tremendous AI researcher as well. And you, you all are so intelligent, so bright, so brilliant. I love to help our audience simplify things, you know, because the ideas that we're going to be talking about can be quite complex, right? Um, and a lot of people would love to dive in and learn more about it. It just needs to, and you do a great job communicating science. So I'd love to start there. Before we dive into, again, the origins of life, I'd love to think about with the complexity of the work that you do. And I know you have a passion for communicating science. What are a few ways that you've learned to take those very, very complex ideas and then simplify it down into something that a lot of people, it resonates with more people? Um, yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think for me, I'm super motivated. Um, you know, the question I'm asking scientifically is what we are. And I don't think that's a dialogue that's isolated to a single individual. Um, and I obviously think very deeply about the problem, but I think in order to actually progress on that question, it needs to be more of a global dialogue. So I don't really, I mean, a lot of people engage in what they call quote unquote science outreach. And I don't think when I'm having conversations with the public, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm not, I, I, I'm not interested in teaching facts. I'm not interested in telling people how things work. I'm interested in opening a dialogue about the things we don't know. Um, and so for me, I, I spend a lot of time trying to work at the frontiers of what we know and figure out what are really the questions that we're missing and what are the ways of framing that that could inspire new thinking. And then I like to do, um, in some sense, because I'm a theorist, I don't do experiments. But a lot of the kind of experiments I like to do are playing around with ideas in public spaces and seeing how people react to them and how they resonate with them. Um, and I think that's particularly important when you're talking about the need, like the fundamental nature of life, because we all are life. We're literally experiencing this phenomenon right now. And so I think everybody has some window into it. Um, and so I'm just deeply interested in kind of helping to mediate those conversations. So I think, I think the reason I'm so motivated to try to uh, deconstruct the ideas and try to figure out how to communicate them is because I want to talk to people about them and I want to know what they think. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Love that. All right. So let's get into the origins of life a little bit. And so Sarah, you know, my background is in psychology and biology. I was going to go into neuroscience, but ultimately I went into biotech and, and, uh, I won't keep going down my career path, but I understand a thing or two about the origins of life. What is your version of it? So when you think about it and, and how do you convey it, give the audience a quick rundown of where you see and how you see the origins of life beginning uh, so that, again, so the audience can pick up on it and we can go bring our conversation forward from that point. 
Yeah, so I think I, I think about the problem um, differently than people in my field traditionally have. So I, a lot of the focus on the, the issue of the origins of life has been thinking about the chem- chemical composition of life as we know it. So what kind of molecules do we find across life on Earth and how do we make those in the absence of a living system? Um, and so, so that approach is really focused on the component parts and it doesn't really think about life as this property that emerges um, out of the interactions of you know, many thousands of chemical components and um, and doesn't really think about sort of the complexity of the problem. Um, and so when I started in this field, I was really baffled by the fact that almost no origins of life research was actually asking about the origin of life. They weren't asking the question, how does non-living matter transition to living matter? They were asking the question, how do I make parts of living matter under presumably, quote unquote, prebiotic conditions before life? Um, but the problem with that is also when you design an experiment, um, and this is really an insight I got from Lee Cronin, who's listening, highly, um, uh, about um, that he, you know, he's really pioneered in his lab is trying to remove the agency that we put into the experiment. So a lot of the, the issue there is when you're designing an experiment, that's actually a biological activity. We don't think about ourselves doing science as being representative of the physics of life, but we are. We're designing the boundary conditions of an experiment. We're thinking about, you know, the purified reagents. We're actually um, doing that purification process, put it, changing the pH. And, you know, there's all these steps that you can imagine doing to get the specific products that you want to say came from natural conditions on early Earth, but you engineered all the steps to be, you know, particular steps that might have happened on early Earth. Um, and so I think the, the real sort of conceptual shift that needs to happen in thinking about origins of life is to ask the deeper question about what the nature of life is um, and how we think about that and then go back to the chemistry after. And, and that approach is really based on the idea that life is not accounted for by current theories of physics and chemistry. Uh, we don't have an explanation for life. Um, life doesn't violate the known laws of physics. I would never claim that it does. It's obviously very consistent with them, which is one of the reasons that people, for example, want to use non-equilibrium thermodynamics extensions of current physics to try to explain life. But my perspective has always been that life is a really different kind of phenomena than any phenomena we've tried to regularize with mathematical laws in the past. Um, And the feature that really sets life apart in my mind is our ability to use information or the fact that we we seem to be where the physics of information actually matters um, in the universe. And that gets into all kinds of, uh, you know, deep philosophical discussions about what do you mean by information and things. Um, And so... um, So I think uh, the way that I think about that problem most concretely is to think about what's necessary to explain some of the features of the world as we observe it. So um, so if, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I can give a quick example trying to dive into what that physics looks like a little bit, um, which is one of my favorite examples, but maybe I'll stop there. Okay, because um, this is a little long-winded, so I don't want to talk too much on any one topic, but I think, um, so So if you buy this idea that, that life is somehow representative of physics of information, we haven't described that yet. You can say, well, Sarah, what do you actually mean? Um, because that that's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's not very concrete, but I think there's some illustrative examples I can, I can give to try to get at what I mean. And then this gets into the kind of theory that we're trying to work on now as far as how to solve the problem of what life is. And then once you solve that problem, being able to address the origin. Um, 
so my favorite examples are two examples. They're very anthropocentric examples, so they're very human-focused, but I think they get at the nature of the problem. The first one um, is thinking about explaining the satellites orbiting Earth right now from the perspective of, like, what is the fundamental phenomena that would explain why we have thousands of satellites orbiting Earth. And if you really want an explanation for that phenomena, um, you have to think about the fact that we have a technological civilization on a surface of our planet. Um, that technological civilization has emerged on our planet over 4 billion years of evolution. Um, and at a very recent stage of that evolutionary process has acquired knowledge of something that we call the laws of gravitation. We've, we've basically recognized irregularity. You know, the motions behave a certain way in the presence of massive bodies. Uh, we've written that down as a, what we call a law of nature. And we've used that knowledge to actually now do things that were impossible in our planet's history in the past. That particular feature I'm focusing on is the fact that we can build little metal boxes and launch them into space and do that repeatedly. So, you know, now we have thousands of satellites orbiting Earth. We don't see that around other planets that aren't inhabited. We would never expect to see that. Yeah. Um, a second example. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's clearly a biosignature, right? But um, but it's not one I would expect to spot, spot on a, I don't know, an exoplanet or something. But the key point here is what is the explanatory framework you need to explain why that feature exists in the universe? Um, and it seems to be information, which I've used as knowledge, laws, knowledge of some regularity in the world, um, uh, knowledge of the laws of gravitation is the sort of key feature, key feature missing, right? Otherwise, you would have to fine-tune the initial conditions of the universe, and there's, there's all kinds of problems with that. But, um, but the second example I really like is to think about um, the periodic table, the elements. So we've all seen the periodic table. Maybe some of you um, have seen it where it's colored by the different physical mechanisms for formation processes of the different elements and so you know like hydrogen and helium will be you know they, they were formed just after the big bang um and then when you get to to higher atomic number elements they have to be produced in the interiors of stars so that's where the idea that we're all stardust comes from right so some of these heavier elements are produced um in stellar nuclear synthesis um and then some elements you know require maybe more extreme events in the universe like um, mergers of neutron stars and things but when you get to the heaviest atomic number elements things like all the way up to 118, which I can't even pronounce the name of these elements. I think it's agnesium or something. Um, but those are produced, um, as far as we know, reliably only by technology in the universe, right? So what I mean by that is we can make those in a lab on Earth um, because we have knowledge of nuclear physics and we can control the boundary conditions um, and basically engineer the production of this element. It's not excluded by the laws of physics, but the probability, the likelihood of that element occurring in the universe is minuscule. There's no reliable physical process until you get to the level of intelligence where intelligence has acquired this kind of deep knowledge of the regularities, the way the universe works. So those are the features that I'm interested in. And I've given you two really anthropocentric examples, but my point is that that kind of physics actually emerges with what we call the original life. This idea that information now becomes necessary to explain certain features of the world. And and the, like I said, there's theory that I can explain about how we're trying to develop that, but I'll stop there for a moment. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. From the origin wow. life satellites, it's all the same explanation. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many ways to take this conversation. One thing I'd like to do is actually take a step back for a second because you started uh, a few minutes ago uh, by saying that, um, you know, Others think differently, right, about the origins of life and necessarily think you, you had said that. So maybe other researchers or there are obviously other people that are a theorist as well. Um, can you explain that a little bit? What makes yours different from theirs and then why? Right. Because I'm wondering, there must be other conversations or arguments or debates on this exact topic. And I'd love to hear more about that. 
Um, yeah, I think it comes from the issue of whether you think tackling uh, the problem you know, head on the, the question, what is life directly, is a reasonable way of approaching origins of life or astrobiology. And, you know, in this conversation, it might seem like that's the obvious thing to do, but that's not the sort of way that traditionally people have addressed it. We, we in the past, have really tried to define life, um, and there's a huge set of issues with defining life. Um, um, and the fact that any definition you come up with will have counterexamples. So this is one reason why, um, you know, viruses are always in this kind of subject of debate because they seem to sit on this boundary line of most definitions for life. Um, and so, so this exercise of defining life, um, uh, you know, is is very problematic because we exclude cases we want to include and include cases we want to exclude, um, like viruses and fire. But the so a lot of people have. Just kind of been like, okay, well, let's just run with a definition of life and then use that to inform some original life hypothesis. So a good example is um, if you think life is about, um, well, there's a, a very popular definition of life. Life is a chemical uh, system, uh, a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution, which is I think it's a terrible definition on a lot of levels. One is it assumes life is a chemical phenomena um, and doesn't give it broader categorization than that. Two um, is it assumes Darwinian evolution is the only mode of evolution. And three, it has a notion of life which is, exists at the individuals, um, or it implies it, it's an individual. But Darwinian evolution only operates at the level of population, so basically assumes that only populations are alive um, implicitly in the structure of the definition. So it has a lot of issues that it's actually conflicting itself. But people will use that definition to try to inform models of like the RNA world scenario, for example. So in the RNA world, um, people have a conjecture that a molecule emerged on early Earth and was self-sustaining and could undergo Darwinian evolution. So they have this definition that doesn't work for life, that they apply to a chemical system that's highly engineered with a lot of intelligent agency, and they say they solved the origin of life. But what they've really done is they've gone through four billion years of evolution and came up with an idea, and they built a lab experiment, which is contingent on their biology and all of that evolutionary history. So um, so that's one one. One example, another example is, you know, if you think life is about harnessing free energy, you might assume that life is some kind of self-organized metabolic system. But when you get into those kind of definitions for life, um, people have issues distinguishing, say, fire from a living system. Um, or um, the example I like to give is, is the great red spot on Jupiter, a biosignature, in the same way that a city organized on a planet is a biosignature, right? They're both self-organized dissipative structures that exist on surfaces of planets in our solar system. Um, they both can be explained in terms of thermodynamics dynamic principles on some level, but they're not, it's not sufficient to explain the existence of a city. It might be sufficient to explain the existence of the Great Red Spot. So, um, so just to go back to your question about like what has been traditionally wrong with um, these sort of definitions of life, I just don't think that they're digging deep enough. They're looking at these surface level features that are very obvious to us about what life is is on this planet um, in a particular instance where they've basically broken out a part of biology and they say, this is the most important feature of biology. Um, and they haven't actually tried to dig down below the surface and actually see what the structure of reality is underneath that. Um, and they, my favorite example to think about this is just to think about the 2,000-year evolution of our understanding of planetary motions. Um, so, you know, 2,000 years ago, epicycles were the state-of-the-art model to think about 
about um, planetary motion. And for those of you that don't know what epicycles are, they're these circular orbits, inside circular orbits in a geocentric model. So you have the Earth at the center of the universe, and then you look at the planets, and to make the planet um, orbits match in our night sky, you had to add circles inside of circles of their orbits. So they're very complicated mathematical models. They could be very predictive over certain time scales, but they needed constant refinement. And when we got better and better measurements, after we invented clocks that could measure seconds, for example, um, thousands of, you know, 1,500 years later, uh, we realized that those models really didn't fit. And then um, what Galileo and Newton did was they realized that terrestrial motion and celestial motion could be unified by this common description that they that Newton called gravity. Um, and so that gave us a deeper explanation that not only explained motion on the Earth, but motion in the heavens. And then, you know, Einstein came up with the ideas of curvature of space time to explain that phenomenon at an even deeper level. And my point with this analogy is when you go to current models for origins of life and how we talk about life, life is a replicator, life is metabolism, et cetera, et cetera. Those, to me, are the equivalent of epicycle models. They are very descriptive. They are descriptive of certain slices of life we might look at, but they're not getting at the deeper story. Um, and so I don't think that we need to be defining life. I think we need to derive it from a theory of physics that really accounts for us existing in the universe and what we are. Ooh, folks in the audience, did you get all of that? I can tell how you're passionate about this, Sarah. Sorry, you're... I get, I get, I talk really fast when I get excited and it's just a thing. We <laughs> love it. That, that is such a huge part of storytelling, Sarah, is being able to communicate effectively. But, you know, when you hear that passion and you hear it genuinely, uh, the audience wants more, right? And so that's why it's so great to have you here is that you, you are able to articulate it in such great detail at a high level and down in the simple terms as well. So thank you for all that. I'm sure there will be more questions. And just for folks in the audience, I want to quickly refresh the room. We were talking with Dr. Sarah Walker, a tremendous astrobiologist and much, much more about all things. What is life? Do aliens exist? We're going to get into that a little bit more uh, and get ready for a Q&A, right? If you have questions, get them ready. We'll add you to the queue. We'll get you up here. Uh, go ahead and do so. Uh, and then we will dive in deep for just a little bit longer. All right, let's transition it. And I'm actually, I'm inspired by someone because, uh, you know, you've spoken with Lex before. Lex is in the room. Hello, Lex. You're welcome to join if you're interested. But you guys had such a tremendous conversation. And one thing I love is when he said, can we talk about aliens? And what did you say? I don't remember, but I'm always willing to talk about aliens. So probably. Okay. You, you said yes is what the answer was, right? Um, but okay. I, I'd, I'd love to transition that a little bit more, right? You know, how are you defining that term, first and foremost, alien? And then how are you studying that? Get people familiar with the work that you're doing. And then we'll be able to dive in a little bit deeper to the topic. But uh, just give us a little bit of a, of a, a heads up of the, that, about the stuff that you're doing in this space right now. Right. So, um, so this is a lot of work that I'm doing with Lee Cronin, who is also here, but, um, I, so, so far in this conversation, I've mostly been talking about the problems and I think it's really important to get, um, theory from the bottom up that's actually addressing the unique problems that we see when we're trying to understand what life is. And if you look at the history of physics, like, you know, every time we got a new fundamental theory of nature, it was because somebody was addressing a specific deep problem about how the world worked. They weren't necessarily trying to unify existing theories. And right now we have this mentality in physics, like, let's just look at our current theories and dig a little deeper and come up with grand unified theories. But historically, that that's not been the way it's been done. 
is we look at a phenomena for what it is and we try to understand what it is. Um, and so the way that we're doing that um, is with something uh, that we call assembly theory, which is basically trying to explain reality um, not in terms of space um, necessarily or time in the current conception in physics, but in terms of uh, causal structure. And um, assembly theory is really derived from thinking about um, how would you identify a molecule in an atmosphere of an exoplanet or in another world as being alien, or how would you know in the context of an open light experiment that you succeed that you've evolved a life form from scratch? So in order to do that, you have to be able to look at chemistry and say, there's something in this chemistry that's attributed to the fact that life has emerged in the system. Um, and so, so he's the actual experimentalist, and he came up with this idea of trying to think about um, a molecule, um, basically, in this framework of assembly. Um, and what you do there is if you take a molecule uh, and you don't think about, well, you take a assembly space, you take a molecule, you cut it in half, and you cut it in half again, and you cut it in half again until you get to elementary building blocks. And then you can think about trying to build up those building blocks to make the original molecule. And there's not a unique pathway there, right? There's actually lots and lots of pathways. Um, and the larger that molecule is, the more complex it is. It's an exponentially growing number of pathways. Um, but what we're interested in is the shortest amount of steps to produce that molecule. Um, and so the conjecture there was if that shortest number of paths is sufficiently long, um, then there would not, because there's this combinatorial explosion of all the different kinds of molecules that could exist. So chemical space, I should qualify this, is so large, it's almost um, unfathomable in some sense. Um, people think like the physical size of the universe is big, but if you think about the combinatorial space of chemistry, it's really, 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 really big. Um, and so, so when you start building up more complex molecules, the space is um, exponentially growing. And so the likelihood of hitting that one complex molecule is very small. So if you're thinking about the shortest path as being a measure of a distance into that space, the idea was if that, sh that shortest path is sufficiently long, you actually need a system that has information about making that specific molecule um, uh, or some kind of select process that produces that specific molecule, some kind of living system, basically, to have made that molecule. So this is introduces the idea that in assembly spaces, there should be a threshold in complexity in assembly above which only living systems would be the things that could produce objects with that complexity. Um, and so when you think about that in chemistry, it means that there should be certain molecules that are definitive biosignatures that an alien was present based on having a high assembly number, but they have a very long path to produce them, um, require information for their construction. Mm. Now, this seems kind of, um, yeah, some people may argue against that, like there's some niche geochemical environment that can produce that molecule somewhere, but like the counter argument to that is, would you expect a cell phone to spontaneously fluctuate into existence on Mars? Um, and what I mean by that is there are surefire complex objects that exist in our universe that require evolution to produce them. And what we're doing in assembly theory is basically quantifying that in terms of the causal structure of objects. Um, in terms of this, all the ways that the universe could assemble them. And then what that gives you is basically the fundamental units, the fundamental objects in your theory are now assembly spaces. Everything in reality is a causal graph. Um, I'm one with a very long, shortest path. Uh, but, um, and, and maybe a, you know, a simple molecule is a, a shorter, shortest path. Line. But you can, you can now think about all of these things basically being these um, objects that are extended in time um, because all of these ways of assembling them have to be, occur over time. Um, 
Wow. I can give a simple analogy of what that looks like, but, yeah. but I, I should probably stop there and let. Um, why, well, why don't you, you give the simple analogy? Because that can okay. be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I mean, a lot of people like to na- I, I, you know, uh, make an analogy to like Lego blocks with um, assembly. So like, I like to imagine that I have a stack of blue and yellow Legos, right? So imagine, you know, you just have a stack of 10 Legos and they're blue and yellow in some arrangement. So everybody in there has this in their mind now. Um, and it, so to make the assembly space for that stack of Legos, you basically take it apart to the individual building blocks and then you follow all the pathways of being able to reconstruct that original object. Um, and this is one of the reasons I think it's really important to note that assembly spaces exist across time. They're actually physical things that exist across time because when you assemble a pathway, you can only see the structure of that pathway if you resolve it across what we call the passage of time. Um, and what we're saying in assembly theory, or at least how I interpret it, is that's actually a physical attribute of that Lego stack or that molecule. When, it, when you look at that, that thing, it's actually all of those ways of assembling it across time. So it has a very complex structure in time. Yes. I mean, everything we're talking about is very complex. So again, thank you for sharing it. We're, we're, we're trying to share this with yeah. an audience that, you know, we're not, well, heck, there could be a full room of PhDs here, uh, but we're trying to understand it. And it's such an exciting topic, whether we're talking about, of course, the origins of life or is there other life out there? So let's transition to that topic next. And then again, folks in the audience, if you have questions, go ahead, raise your hands for Sarah. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, I'll get you in the queue. So, Sarah, while we're uh, getting that ready, let's talk a little bit about how we find if there's life out there. How are you exploring the universe, quote unquote, uh, and the key question, is there life out there as well? Walk us through how you think think about that. Um, so I think the, the most promising um, tool we have right now for uh, looking for alien life is to use assembly theory. Um, and the reason for that is I mentioned that we had conjectured that there was this threshold in assembly spaces above which if you saw a molecule with a sufficiently high assembly number, it had produced by life. Um, Lee's lab actually has empirically you know, gone in the lab and they've confirmed that that's consistent with um, experimental data from non-living and living systems. So this was a paper that was published last June. Um, so we have really concrete experience. It's not just that we have a theory in our mind that we think accounts for some features of life. It's that we're actually really working very hard to connect these deep theoretical ideas about this new physics that might be in life with what's done in the lab. Um, and so now we have a number that ha- that number of step happened to be 15 um, from the sort of experimental data. So, um, so Lee's up here now and he can explain some of that a bit more if you guys are interested in experiment stuff or more on the theory but the idea is then if we go say to Enceladus or Titan or Venus or places in the solar system with a mass spec and we can look for these high assembly molecules that would be the best indicator that we have right now of alien life so the the idea is to look for complex objects high assembly objects as biosignatures well, I like how you said the best. That's a great way of phrasing it. And so, Professor Lee Cronin, welcome to the stage. Thank you for joining us. I know you both have spoken about this uh, before on other places like Clubhouse, so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Lee, what do you think about the conversation so far? And, and where uh, would you like to kind of take it next? What's on your mind? Hi, good evening. Can you hear me okay? Or well, good afternoon, wherever you are. Yeah, we can hear you perfectly. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think Sarah's doing a great job of explaining assembly theory. I mean, this is something we've been working on for many years because assembly theory started life and looking at molecules. Oh, 
I think we got you cut off for just one second, Lee. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, um, yeah, someone was trying to call me. Uh, That's the problem with, li- hey, it's okay, it's live audio, right? We're all good. <laughs> We're going to take a, take a moment. But yes, please continue when you, when you can. Um, yeah, so uh, um, the most important thing is that the, the, we, we realized that molecules uh, gave us the route into understanding assembly theory in general. And um, and it doesn't just manifest. So complexity doesn't just manifest in molecules; it manifests in all objects. In fact, an iPhone has an assembly number and has a causal structure associated with it, lineage. It's just that we can work with molecules because they're easy to detect. Not only using mass spec, we've worked out ways of using infrared spectroscopy. That is using um, laser light and also detecting the return, so you can actually detect the rainbow in a molecule. The more the more complex the rainbow of a molecule. Sorry if I'm dumbing this down too much. I'm not meaning to, but the, the absorption spectrum and then emission spectrum in the infrared. Um, we can also potentially count how complex a, num- a molecule is using that approach. Uh, very good, and thank you for for dumbing it down. And actually, that's what we're trying to do here. Is is you guys think make it about, accessible? Make it accessible. I hate the phrase "dumbing it down." I apologize. It's not dumb. It's exactly how it works. <laughs> yes, we're trying to make it very simple. I completely agree. And last week, you know, I felt dumb when I was talking with Yoha Bach because he's so smart and about AI and uh, artificial intelligence and cognitive science. But that's the idea. Is I want to surround myself with such smart people, but help convey all the great and complex work that you're doing in a way that more people can follow and appreciate the great work that you're doing as well. So, um, and, and folks, again, quick reminder, we're going to bring you up, get your questions ready. Sarah, back to you, uh, you know, with what Lee said and uh, kind of where you were going before, continue just, w- and maybe share, what are you currently doing right now? Because we can look at your whole career and maybe what you're going to do next, but right now, what are you specifically looking at? Um, yeah, so right now, um, we are taking a deep dive into trying to develop this theory of assembly theory. So we have the um, sort of this, you know, idea that this might be a good structure for a theory of physics that explains life. And we're basically trying to work out what that looks like. Um, And there's a lot of interesting features associated with that. It has a a lot of, um, uh, the theory has a lot of nice properties. Like for example, if you look at low assembly objects, we expect to recover thermodynamics. But if you have high assembly objects, there's some additional properties that you have to associate to them. So this is kind of getting at this idea that right now current physics deals with elementary objects that have no structure. Um, like they're not complex objects. They're very simple objects. They're easy to identify their properties. Um, and what we would say in assembly theory is basically those objects don't really exist um, across time. They don't have this kind of complex structure that evolves things like us have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you should be able to reduce the theory for life to kind of current theories of physics and some approximations. Um, so I think that's an, an, an interesting way of thinking about where our, our current physics is incomplete. Assembly theory basically deals with high dimensional combinatorial spaces and current physics has dealt with very uh, low combinatorial diversity, but dealing more with properties in space and time and translation and symmetries and these kind of things. Um, so, so that's one thing, but the thing I'm really, really, really excited about, I guess I'm really excited about a lot of stuff my lab is doing. I'll have like amazing students and postdocs, but I think one of my favorite projects is actually trying to apply these ideas to distinguishing behavior that's alive or not. Um, So as we mentioned, assembly theory is a pretty general idea. And so far we've applied it um, most rigorously to molecules. But I think there are experimental ways of trying to say, if you you look at... 
something moving in the world. <laughs> like, like, let's say we see a cell-like structure on Enceladus and it has a pattern of motion. Um, how would you know that that pattern of motion was a living pattern of motion or not just some random fluctuations of like, you know, a lipid being batted around by uh, heat or something. Um, So, um, and I think that there are ways of getting at that. We have a a pretty good uh, theoretical foundation um, and data sets that we're working with. And I'm very excited about uh, this general idea of of just being able to look at a motion and being able to distinguish life or not. And so, Sarah, Um, when we think about this topic, is it about what's currently on this planet or is it in preparation or or currently in the mode of as we look beyond the planet into the universe, we're able to look elsewhere using, for instance, the formats, the the frameworks, every all the ideas that you just shared as well. And if so, can you give folks in the audience an an overview of what we're finding, whether here on Earth, Earth, of course, but is there life beyond the planet? So can you give people a little bit of an overview in that regard? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think you can't solve life off the planet without solving the problem of what life on the planet is. Um, so I think those problems are deeply connected. Um, and if I was going to say sort of my long-term uh, vision for trying to do the search for alien life, I think we need to be able to simulate the conditions under which um uh, aliens emerge in some sense, um, like the origins of life uh, on other alien worlds on Earth. Um, and so, again, going to analogies, I think I think physics has been incredibly successful at connecting the largest scales in the universe and trying to look outside our planet with trying to connect the smallest scales in the universe. So we have, um, you know, huge telescopes that allow us to see deep into the universe. And the way that we understand what we're seeing is basically by building particle accelerators that allow us to physically simulate by bashing molecules together the conditions right after the Big Bang. And I think what we need in, in, in astrobiology is to build a large enough chemical experiment. It has to be a physical experiment that we can simulate conditions on different planets by studying mineralogy, how it interacts with chemistry, how it generates complexity, how it generates rights assembly um, by exploring a very large volume of what chemistry is possible to happen in our universe mm-hmm. and then using that to constrain the kinds of conditions on exoplanets we expect to find life um, so the issue of finding life really relies on how common life is so so far we have no evidence of life in our solar system it doesn't mean that it's not there and one of the things that i have always argued is one of the reasons that we haven't found life yet is because we just really really don't know what we're looking for um, but, um, but let's assume life is, is moderately rare phenomenon on plant, planets in the sense that you need a particular kind of geochemical system in order to kickstart an evolutionary process. Um, then, um, exoplanets are our best bet, but exoplanets, we're going to get so little data from it's little, like one of my colleagues calls it, um, little, little bumps, little squiggles of photons on a, you know, on a spectrograph. And that's basically all we have to infer whether there are biospheres on these plants, whether there's life on them. So I think this idea that we need to actually couple the observational data with simulations of these planets at scale on earth is, is the way to go that we need a big vision for solving the problem. And we need to basically build a planet simulator on earth to evolve aliens 
the novel. It's a very sci-fi. I love the sci-fi aspect of this. And I think there's probably a lot of sci-fi folks in the room. You know, I'd be curious if we did stumble upon something or just actually find something out there. I'm trying to think of what would happen next, right? Because I can't imagine the person that finds it posts on Twitter, hey, guess what I find, right? What I found, right? But then they'd go through a lot of these experiments that hopefully are well-developed, but they would be completely private, right? Like whoever's either the scientist and or governments, whoever's involved, I mean, that would, and it could already be happening, right? But what would that be like if you can walk that through uh, the exercise for us, if you will, of if we found something, then what's the best process to understand it and then let the world know about it as well? Right. So I think there's... Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, My my response to to that is just that um, the... I think there's a real difference. We can't confuse knowledge with discoveries changing the way that things actually work. Um, And what I mean by that is there's already a lot of people that think we've made first contact with aliens. And there have been a lot of um, so that that might be outside of the traditional scientific community, right? So for them, it wouldn't be surprising that we've discovered alien life because they already think that we have. Um, and then there's also a lot of people within the scientific community have made announcements that were false announcements of the discovery of alien life. The most famous was uh, when Bill Clinton stood on the lawn of the White House in 1996 and announced that we found potential evidence of life in a market meteorite. So, I mean, you literally had the president of the United States announcing possible um, detection of aliens. And then we had the phosphine on Venus thing a couple years ago. I think the reason that these haven't radically changed our perceptions of things is because we actually don't have a deep explanatory framework for what life is. Um, And you should really think that with the discovery of alien life, what you're really getting is transformative knowledge about what life in the universe is. That is what the discovery of alien life is. It's knowledge. It's knowledge that gives you... um, a control and power in some sense over the phenomena that we call life and ability to understand its regularities and patterns and be ability to steer our own future. Um, in the same way that knowledge of gravitation led to technological consequences downstream, you know, centuries hence that we couldn't anticipate. And that's really the real value of making a discovery of alien life, but it's not the, the discovery itself. It's like, it's the knowledge that becomes transformative. And so I think people are really missing sight of what's the actual question here that we're trying to ask and what we're trying to answer. And what we're really looking for is an explanation of what life is in the universe. Um, and I, I think that's a fundamentally level different different level of discussion than people have been having about the detection. Ah, so it's, well, many are looking for life itself. It's actually looking for, well, what is life itself and defining it using the knowledge that you were just articulating. So I love that perspective. And, and, and Lee, you were just speaking up a moment ago as well. So yeah, please share your thoughts. Yeah, just quickly, I, I agree with what Sarah's saying. I'm not sure that the Bill Clinton thing is completely false. I think that that's, it's just not proven. There was a nano fossil. So I, I want to get the language right. I think it's important that people, we're, lots of us have kind of, um, we love the prospect of discovering alien life, right? Um, I think that this kind of idea that it isn't uh, falsifiable is wrong. It's a bit like the discovery of electricity or, mag- or magnetism and going back to mystical times. So, you know, to cut a long story short, we have a system in the lab right now that's aiming to make alien life or artificial life, and we have systems that are aiming to detect it off-world. What will happen when we detect it using the system? Well, we'll we'll publish it. We'll tell people. It will be exactly like the Higgs boson. What assembly theory allows you to do is put a proper theory on the detection of life, 
like a proper theory, the standard laws worked up to predict the existence of the Higgs boson. So when the Higgs boson was announced, the discovery, no one disputed it, right? Or no, no one really, I mean, you know, you might have had some people, but there was no, it was 99.99% of the community understood it. Our aim, so what Sarah and I are aiming to do, is put this on such a strong theoretical level that when we do the experiments, or we, or when we were doing the experiments in my lab, but when we quantify them together, we will be able to show for sure that the probability that when we get detection event has come randomly is so small, it's, uh, it's going to be negligible and we'll go and explore the life form and so on. And I think that a lot of it's a kind of really overhyping the prospect for aliens because it's just so hard for aliens to get to Earth. I'm not saying they haven't come here in the past and all this stuff, but it's extremely unlikely and I haven't seen any evidence. What we're aiming to do is try and make life in the lab and detect life locally and and make sure that we can say that we have security, that we've had a proper detection. And, uh, and it will be exciting when we do so. Ooh, this is fantastic. This is definitely fantastic. All right. Well, um, and, and Sarah, I want to be I want to be respectful of your time. I know we booked about 45 minutes or so. We're coming up at that mark. Uh, do you have a few more minutes or do you have to jet? No, I have a few more minutes. Okay, great. And Lee, stick with us as well. Um, so again, folks in the audience, go ahead, raise your hands. We have a full queue already. Uh, I'm going to bring up maybe a, a few of you if possible, and, and even just one right now, uh, Nature's Uprise. But please introduce yourself with your name and then very quickly what your question is. Well, my name is Jamal, and I just wanted to know if you guys think that bugs are aliens. Like insects? Yes, insects. Um, no, I, I, I don't, um, I think there's a lot of evidence that they, they share common, uh, ancestry with other life on earth. So, but I think one of the, the things, um, that I didn't mention in the conversation that I think is really important is when you're thinking about life, um, that life on earth is all connected across time by evolution. Um, and so, um, so there really actually aren't any examples of life on earth that we've ever discovered that aren't connected to um, a common origin as their explanation. So insects too, yeah. as weird as they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are quite weird. They kind of look like aliens sometimes. And then to a point, you know, we are studying the things here on the planet as well. So, uh, but let's keep yeah. going. Sean, thank you for uh, joining us today. And I see that you're in North Carolina, close to where I am. Uh, what's on your mind today? And Sean, you have a mute button on as well. Hey, Sean McManus, are you there? All right. Well, we'll give him a moment to unmute if possible. Um, but let's continue. So I'd actually like to swing it back to Lee real quick. You and Sarah, it sounds like you guys work together pretty, really closely. Uh, are there things that you've always wanted to ask either each other, but you haven't had that opportunity? Or is there a question that you guys are, are uh, deciphering, you're thinking through right now that's just really interesting, it's fascinating uh, that you can share with us? Because it's 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 nice to get inside your minds, right? And what you're thinking about, what questions that you have at the same time, what's something new, Lee, that you may have for Sarah as you, as we have a conversation here on stage. It was, it, it, it's not that new. And I guess Sarah knows what to say. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I started having a mini argument with Sarah about this a number of years ago that I was saying that I thought that I think that time is more fundamental than space. 
And uh, we've kind of been having arguments. We're well, not arguments, we've been discussing it ever since. And we're now trying to work this up. And, and I, we think actually assembly theory might explain some of it. So one idea we're working out is the idea that time comes before space. That time, in fact, invents space. And one of the things I was talking with Sarah about the other day is that this probably explains quantum non-locality and the nature of entanglement, that everyone thinks that there is spooky action at a distance. But if all the particles in the universe started in the same space and they are interlinked in that way, it's not really any um, surprise that quantum non-locality works. So what does that mean? When you take two photons, entangle them, and you let them move away from one another to their distance where they can't possibly cheat, if you interrogated each one um, independently, they would look random. If you independently, if you entangle them and then move the information, so if you interrogate them, move the information to an observer, later and you can recombine it, you would know that they would be correlated. I think the correlations in the universe prove that entanglement proves that time came before space. There you go. That's a radical one. I don't know what you think about that, Sarah. I agree with you. Whoa. Oh, come on. That's, 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 that's pretty mind-blowing, though, right? No, no other physicist on the planet would, would agree with that. Well, I think it's the logical consequence of something we've been working on, but I think, you know, always, always the bar is how do we prove it? So we, you know, that's the part we have to talk about what would be the experiment, but you're, that's your well, ballgame, ball so. I think that the nice thing is that this doesn't require the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics, that, that basically right. assembly theory encapsulates the many worlds in some way. And um, I think that that's really exciting how we're going to start to reinvent physics. But remember, everyone who's listening, I'm, I'm, I'm a chemist. So I'm not saying it's above my pay grade. I'm just saying that I'm able to ask these really annoying questions that uh, would probably get me fired from the discipline. Because Sarah is so elegantly looking, working on this life-non-life transition and the new physics there, I think it's probably... Um, it's not easier, but I think it's more familiar to have these um, these discussions. I don't, I don't want to speak for you, Sarah. You probably got opinions on that. I always have opinions, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we'll let you guys argue about that or agree on on your yeah. own time. It's just nice to kind of throw that out there, right? And just have a, an engaging conversation. Uh, but I want to be respectful of your time. We have one more person that's come up, Judy. Uh, it looks like you're a student, a geobiology student. Uh, thank you for being so patient. What's on your mind today? Um, yeah, thanks. I was just wondering if um, you guys thought that life on Earth could have arisen like multiple times, and it's just that the one that made it is the one that we see today. So yeah. I, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, in the early, it depends on where you, where you draw the boundary around what you call life. Um, and so I don't really, um, think of individuals as the proper, a way of framing a lot of these kind of questions. Um, and so when I'm approaching problems on the nature of life, I tend to think especially about the origin of life as the origin of life is a planetary scale phenomena. Um, and that the that life has persisted as a planetary scale phenomena for 4 billion years. And what I, I mean by that is that life exists, of course, in, um, in molecules, in cells, in aggregates of cells and ecosystems, it's, it, it exists across all of, of all of these different scales that we might talk about by biological organization. Um, and so, when you think about it from that perspective, 
um, the way that I would talk about life on this planet is life is the structure of basically information patterning matter on this planet over the last four billion years across all of those scales. And I would just say there's one example of life on a planet. Um, but, um, when it emerges, it's like this transition to this new domain of physics that basically governs that, that set of properties. So I, I don't always think of it about these sort of, uh, so I have a lot of debates actually with my my uh, colleague Paul Davies about this because he's been a major proponent of this idea of a shadow biosphere, that there was an independent origin of life on Earth um, that might still be present today and didn't even die out um, and that we might find evidence of it today. But but I, you know, I, I'd be happy to be disproven, but in, in sort of the current structure of, of the kind of work my group does and the evidence we're getting looking at biochemical network data and, and things like that, it just seems to be the case that there there's a lot of arguments to be made about the kind of thing I was just saying, and it is a very fruitful theoretical playground for thinking about framing questions about the nature of life. And Lee, you were going to say, what's in your mind? So I think that life probably started, or different types of life started, um, chemically different lives, different types of life started on the earth all the time, but they're all related by evolutionary envelope and exchanging information in some way. So I think the origin of life transition, and I think this is something Sarah taught me, is just one phenomena but probably happened in lots and lots and lots of different ways. But, but in the end, it became more efficient to basically exchange um, information and, and stuff. And it's a bit like, and I hate to say this, but think about the franchise, the McDonald's franchise. It's easier to kind of exchange, you know, Big Macs across the planet because um, you have a common understanding of that franchise. And I think that when RNA became the molecule of choice and the different amino acids, then it just got it got baked in. But I think that life had many dependent... And we, I sorry, think... that life had many different independent chemical origins. Sorry. No, you're fine. Just a, a brief part of that got cut off real quick. But I think that we heard the m- most of that. Sarah, did you have something to say? No, okay. but Judy, that was a great question. Thank you for it. Yeah, thanks, Judy. And again, it's always great to have, you know, a diverse audience here that we're hearing from around the world and of all ages, from students to I'm sure there's people with PhDs in the room. I mean, this is so fascinating, Sarah and Lee. I think the last question before we go that'll just be really, really helpful. You know, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, now they can go read textbooks and all that stuff. What is a uh, something that really, really resonates with you? It could be a book. It could be a movie. It could be a person that you would suggest people go follow, including you, uh, but to learn more about the exciting research that you're doing in this regard. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, well, which is actually a short story. So for people that saw the movie Arrival and you like that alien fiction, I really love um, – the story of your life written by Ted Chang. I just think the way it's written is really beautiful. And it was, it was deeply fascinating to me uh, reading that because of the way it plays with time. And obviously Lee and I have been talking a lot about in this conversation about the relationship between life and rethinking what time is kind of fundamentally from the perspective of physics. So I just thought it was a really deeply intriguing kind of set of insights in that story, even though time is treated within sort of standard physics. Um, but just the, the way it plays with it is really interesting. So 
I, I guess I would suggest that. We have a, for those of you that are on Clubhouse, we have a Clubhouse that we do regularly too, talking about similar kinds of things. So yes. that might also be fun. And yeah. thank you for joining me here. I know that you guys do it on, on Clubhouse. It's a great place. Uh, there's a lot of people as well. So if there's a, you know, ever a chance that you'd like to do more of those over here, I think there's plenty of people. I mean, I have a, a whole queue of so many people that are raising their hands that are wanting to learn more, um, but we just don't have the time today. So, hey, Dr. Sarah and of course, Professor Lee, we thank you so much for joining. This is truly, truly exciting. Of course, folks here, click on their profile pictures right now. Give them a follow. Pay attention to all the great work that they're doing. And Sarah, what's coming up next for you? Are you speaking any place? Are you traveling any place? Uh, anything like that? What's exciting that the audience can can keep on their radar? Um, well, I'm writing a book, so I'm excited about that, but it's been very slow. And I'm going to be giving a lecture in Santa Fe in March that I'm super excited about. Always love visiting there. It's one of my favorite places um, with lots of my favorite people. And uh, I'll be in Copenhagen in June giving a public lecture. Um, I think those are a couple of the ones coming up. Ooh, I love that. And, and just give us a teaser if you can, because I love interviewing authors as well. Uh, just like Chris Hadfield, the astronaut and author last week or two ago. Uh, can you give us a little bit of tips? Like what is it going to be about or what the title may be? Um, I'm not allowed to tell the title apparently, okay. um, but, but, um, I, it's just about, uh, you know, what a theory of life might look like. All of the sort of problems associated with, you know, the way we've approached it in the past, how deeply rooted it needs to be in fundamental physics and the kind of solutions that I think are, are necessary to get there. And then what that, and what that entails for solving the origin of life and also thinking about our long-term future. Ooh, I absolutely love that. So promise me when you write that book, when it comes out, I'd love to bring you back on and of course help do a, a virtual to. book launch, if you will. Okay. Sure. It sounds great. It's been really fun, Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Lee. And thank you for everyone in the audience that's joining. This is fantastic as we dive into these uh, complex, complex topics, but we try to simple it down and really, really help resonate it for you folks in the audience. Uh, I do this every single week. It could be with authors, tech CEOs, leaders, fascinating thinkers and doers, just like here. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, I even have great more guests coming up, including Johan Hari, one of the best authors out there who and TED speakers as well as many as well as many many more so please follow along i hope you had fun today and of course as always i hope you have a great rest of the day thank you sarah thank you lee thank you bye bye this is the best podcast b-e-s-t stands for business entrepreneurship startups and technology i'm your host adam socklich and each week we talk live on social media platforms like twitter spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories learn the greatest tools and tactics and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people special guests include top founders ceos and experts plus the audience is always full of fascinating people even elon musk recently tuned in all of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.